Welcome to the Desert Sun Podcast with me, your host, Tim Newman. I'm also the author of the blog, White Sun of the Desert, which can be found at www.desertsun.co.uk. Thank you for joining me. Welcome, everybody. Now, this week I don't have a guest. I have one not quite lined up, but I'm working on it. So at some point over the next couple of weeks, hopefully I'll have another guest on. So I've just decided to do another podcast, just me talking. Again, it will be a lot shorter than the ones I have a guest on. I don't think anybody really wants to be listening to me waffling on on my own for an hour or two hours or possibly more. So I've just decided to talk about a couple of topics which I thought lend themselves better to a podcast than a blog post. It's like I said before, it does get tedious writing some of this stuff out. So these topics are completely unrelated to one another. So it really is, you know, well, you'll see. So the first thing I want to talk about is uh, an oil and gas project. Now, most of you would have missed this because you don't follow this kind of news, I'm sure. But last week or maybe the week before, uh, a new project started up or went online in Nigeria, which was Total's Agena project. Now, that was uh, an FPSO, one of the big floating production storage and offloading facilities, which ties into a subsea uh some subsea assets in about uh, roughly about a mile of water offshore nigeria so quite a serious major project this and it's similar in size to the acpo project that they have down there as well um the facility itself the fpso is absolutely enormous it's something like 300 meters long by 60 meters wide absolutely huge things i mean again similar to the the acpo one that's been operating there since about 2010 now, I have some experience on that project, and I'm not going to go into too many details. Maybe if we were sat across a table, I would, but I'm just, just take it that I did have a pretty good insight into how that project was run and what, was, what went on. So if you can bear with me that I'm not going to be backing this up by on the podcast by tons of names and figures and things like this. I'm going to talk in a pretty general sense. A lot of this is public information anyway, but it's just really to give an understanding of how this project was carried out. Now, the first thing is that this is being touted quite rightly as a success of Nigerian content. Probably 80% of this project was done either by Nigerians or under Nigerian management. Now, the local content requirements in Nigeria are quite notorious. They've been being ramped up more and more to this, we're at the moment at this 80% level, which the Agena project was done under. Now, many people thought at the time, this would be impossible. There's no way are we going to be able to do a project of this complexity and this magnitude with 80% Nigerians. Um, but it seems to have worked. And this doesn't this applies to the engineering 80% of the engineering of this facility was done by nigerians or nigerian companies under nigerian management probably not 80% of the construction most of that was done in the samsung shipyard in korea but crucially of the 
18 topside modules, six of them I think, were done in Nigeria. So Samsung came to Nigeria, they built a yard, they built the modules using Nigerian labour in Nigeria, and then they integrated them with the main vessel when it arrived. They put it all together, they've taken it to site and started up and it appears to be working. So this is actually proof that you can you can do these projects with a very high local content requirement which I started to figure out some time ago. And although a lot of the people are declaring this a success, which it is in some level, there's actually a bit of a lesson in there. This project was going to go one of two ways. Either it wasn't going to work and it was going to fail, in which case the Nigerian content legislation or the foreign management is unrealistic or it's no good, or it was going to work. And if it works, as it seems to have done, that raises a really interesting question. And that is, what role in future do the big international oil companies play in countries like Nigeria, but not just like Nigeria, other, company, other countries similar, Angola and Russia and uh, Uganda and these other places, what role are they going to play? Because... When I looked at this project, a lot of people will think, oh, what it was, it was 80% Nigerian labor doing the dumb stuff. And the foreigners brought in this management system and all these procedures and all this expertise that really made the difference. And that 20% is what really brought the project home. But that's not exactly what I saw. In terms of overall management system that could be credited to foreigners, it didn't exist. There was none whatsoever that would pass any kind of description of being a uh, uh, robust, consistent management system. The best you can say is that there were several key individuals who were not Nigerian, many of whom had serious technical expertise, who were employed on the project, who made a heck of a difference. Now, the, some of them were staff, some of them were contractors, and they appeared at various phases of the project doing various disciplines. There were also some good managers. They did have some foreign management. But what it wasn't was a group of Nigerians all overseen by this cohesive, consistent foreign management system and at every step where expertise was needed there was a foreigner in there. That didn't happen at all. So the added value, from what I can tell, from the international oil company was not quite what people will think it was. They certainly would have managed the finances. I think that, was, that would be a huge um, thing for a Nigerian company on their own to manage. They would be able to raise the cash, but they whether they could manage it without stealing it or it would end up being spent in the right places, I don't know. Certainly, um, if people think I'm being unfair to Nigerians, they certainly, certainly haven't proven themselves that they're able to do that. Every single high capital project that goes on in that country, a load of the money disappears. An international oil company can at least pretty much guarantee that won't happen. There's also things like insurances and uh, 
other things which um, maybe having the IOC on board enabled insurance companies and reinsurers to have the greater faith that they'd be able to finish it. But in terms of technical input and managerial input, there's, yeah, the reservoir management, the drilling, that probably wasn't 80% Nigerian. Certainly the subsea systems are very complex and that you need, it was all foreigners who did that or mostly foreigners who did that. But in terms of the FPSO and the top side, which is the, you know, the, the, the production facility, that was pretty much done by 80% Nigerians without any input, structured input, from a foreign company. Like I said, all it had was individuals. Now, the early engineering for that was done in Australia. There were some very good individual engineers working on that. There was no management system to speak of. After that, they did 20% of the engineering work. Some of it went to China. I don't know what management system was in place there, but I can't imagine it was a very robust Western one. The rest of the work went to Nigeria, where it was performed by Nigerians and a whole load of Indians and a few expats. There were expats involved, but like I said, they weren't it wasn't an operation which was fully directed by a foreign entity. These companies were pretty much standalone. So the people who built it, the people who did it, were really working under Samsung's management. And when it came to the construction, well, the Koreans in their yards, they know how to do this. So they pretty much just took off and did whatever they needed to do. And the thing's gone on site and it works. Now, the lesson that I learned from that, and I figured this out quite early on in the project, was that things have moved on in the industry to the point where these big production facilities are no longer that difficult to complete. It's not like 20, 30 years ago where you needed this massive Western expertise in order to get these projects done. You don't. And Egina proves that. They've actually proved what they set out to prove, that really you don't need hundreds of foreigners overseeing Nigerians or Nigerian companies to, to execute this work. It seems to me that all you need is a big company like Samsung who can do the construction, a whole load of Nigerian companies who can employ directly if they need to, Westerners with particular key specialist technical knowledge, and, they, and maybe a few managers, and that's it. So there's some, there's some interesting... Uh, it's it's interesting to think where do the international oil companies go from here because their business model in terms of maybe not in terms of money but in terms of how they see themselves is that they provide technical expertise and that they second dozens and dozens of their very well paid very expensive western employees into these projects i've said before that a lot of the time these oil companies appear like jobs programs well one of the things they do and shell are notorious for this as soon as they get awarded a giant project they just dump hundreds of their employees on it because you know you have to get them doing something and you know they they go from these one flagship project to another that employs hundreds of people 
and they're all living you know they're all living in the nice apartments the school fees paid for you know it's it's quite it's quite nice but i'm wondering in future now that it's been proven that with very little structured western company involvement you can build a very complex fpso why these countries would would uh would 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 need international oil companies in future and there's an interesting example of where the writing might be on the wall for the big oil companies where well, it's actually two one of which is the funding now it used to be that probably in a lot of these these uh, national oil companies in the developing world couldn't raise money on their own but there's a lot of money floating around looking for a home at the moment now in 2014 so okay this is a bit old now but the the principle still applies in 2014 Kenya tried raising 1.5 billion for a pipeline on their territory it got oversubscribed and they raised 2 billion on their own so if the Kenyan government can go directly to the financial markets and raise 2 billion like that when they're only looking for 1.5 it suggests that they don't need international oil companies to even bring the financing anymore. Now, that's one area they should be worried, but there's another one. The Yamal LNG project in Russia is run by a company called Novatech, who kind of popped up out of nowhere, run by... He's one of Gennady Timoshenko's companies, and from what I can work out, he's one of Vladimir Putin's ex-gym buddies. So it's basically a gas company... They got set up out of nowhere in Russia and decided to build an LNG plant in their far north on the Yamal Peninsula, which is really in the middle of nowhere. Now, they teamed up with Total to do that. But crucially, they subcontracted the work. It was Novatech that was in charge of it. It was a consortium, but it was made very clear that Novatech would be the ones in charge, not Total. Now, Total tried sending a lot of his, its supposed experts there. But Novatech didn't really use them very much. In fact, they sent a lot of them back. And what the Novatech did, they hired individuals directly from the labour market. They took a lot of Russian expertise from Yamal LNG. Sorry, from, sorry, Yamal LNG hired in a lot of expertise from Sakhalin 2 LNG. Because Sakhalin had been running for, would be about almost 10 years by then. So they had a lot of Russians with experience in maintenance and operations and things. So they hired them directly. What they also did is hire from Shell. Well, they poached him. He was probably the best LNG process designer in the world. He had designed two or three or four of Shell's LNG plants around the world. And he was obviously very well paid and doing very well with them. He was a Dutchman. Well, Novatech came along and just snaffled him. I don't know what they offered him, but they would have offered him a lot of money and said, come and work for us and design our plant for us. They then subcontracted the work to two companies, one of which was Technip, the French giant engineering company. The other was Chioda, the Japanese engineering company. Now, if you want an LNG plant built in the world, you go to Chioda. Chioda has worked with Technip on many projects before, so if you go to the both of them and they're in some kind of consortium, you won't go far wrong. So Novatech didn't... They hired key individuals who knew what to do, and then they just dumped it all down to a competent subcontractor and managed them. And I had friends working in there, 
Some were working under sort of Total's management. Some were working under Novatech's management. And they said that Novatech weren't messing around. Oh, they were. If they weren't happy with progress, they were they were taking uh, they were taking project scope off a Chinese yard and sending it back into Russia. They were not messing around. And because they were Russians, the Russian contractors and the construction contractors weren't playing funny games with them, like they used to in Sakhalin. So, what happened is this LNG plant got built with actually very very little foreign involvement at the managerial or ownership level but obviously a lot at the engineering construction level particularly at the at the um you know the really difficult bit because lng is quite difficult you need to get that exact oil and gas stuff like the agena was that's not particularly difficult but lng is which is why they went to the japanese anyway this plant got built it started up and it's a success now 10 15 years ago it would have been unheard of for a Russian company, especially one with no real history, to be able to build an LNG plant and get it running. It would have had to have been partnered up with a Western company that sends all its experts in and its management people and all its engineers and they run it and the Russians basically just stand to the side, which is, which is pretty much what happened with Sakhalin too. But no, they've, they've advanced to the point now they don't need this Western expertise. So... When it came to another project, Arctic LNG 2, they asked Total if they wanted to come on board as a partner. And this is what I think happened. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing a bit here, but this is, this is what I heard. Was that Total said, yes, yes, we want to be involved. We want to do this. We'll send people in. And, we'll, and they said, no, 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 you don't understand. We want you as a partner to basically cough up some of the capital. We'll do the work, thanks very much. And I remember when we were looking to invest in this project, we were asking questions about whether it was viable and whether you know we wanted to be involved in it and this kind of thing. And this was all public. I remember this. This they're talking about possible involvement in Arctic LNG two. Meanwhile, the Russians had already built the the uh, the, the the harbor for all the, all the construction. So the Russians were going ahead with it, and they said, "Look, do you want in or not?" And this is the speed that they were working at. And I'm sure this project will go ahead and they'll subcontract to Chodor again. They'll subcontract to Technip. It might be a bit more Russian. But basically, these, these, these places are learning, and they've already learned now, how to do a lot of this complex work. And I think the example of Yamal LNG and Total Ejina, offshore Nigeria is really going to be making people wonder what the what the future of engineers and managers and project managers and these administrators in major oil companies think they're going to be doing in future. And this is actually one of the reasons why I kind of got myself out of the industry. Now, there are some screw-ups, like Kashagan in Kazakhstan was a big problem. They had huge problems uh, on the with leaking pipelines. That's mainly because there was a high concentration of hydrogen sulfide at H2S. So that makes it technically very difficult to do. And that was a really, really big project. Angola LNG was a complete mess as well. So these mistakes do happen. Although both of those happened under the supposed management of Western major, uh, major oil companies. So if you're looking to, in the future, the next 15, 20 years, if these countries can do this stuff on their own, 
where is the future for somebody, for engineers in the major oil companies? There will be some. I mean, like the subsea stuff will still, for now, the deep water subsea stuff still needs to be done by Western companies, but that, that won't stay that way forever. But in terms of top sides, in terms of FPSOs and onshore facilities, even LNG plants, the model going forward is that these companies, provided they can maintain some sort of financial discipline and not steal all the money and run off with it, all they need to do is maintain some sort of financial discipline, which the Russians did, subcontract to foreign companies who don't really employ Westerners either. The Japanese companies employ Japanese and a handful of Westerners, and Technip employ mainly Indians or um, Indonesians and uh, where's I think um, maybe maybe the Philippines as well. There's other big engineering houses, but they go to Asia and and use cheap labor there. And they have key individuals. So I had friends who were lead engineers and experienced people working within these engineering companies. And I think that will always stay. But what you won't get is these countries partnering up with a major oil company who then sends two, three hundred very expensive Western expats in who arrive with their family and they set up a school and they all live in a housing complex. I just don't think that there's any future in that. But the problem is you have a lot of people in these oil companies who are 30, 40, 45, 50 years old who are expecting that. I mean, before I left, everyone was saying, when's the next project? When's the next project? Oh, will there be positions on this project? Well, no, there won't. Because we've already shown that this stuff isn't that difficult anymore. Locals can do it. So the, the, the number of expats on these big projects that are employed via a major oil company are going to be almost negligible. You'll have a, you, maybe you'll have a project director, a couple of others, and that's it. So if you want to be involved in these projects... I think you're better off either being an independent contractor and you go directly to the Techniques and Chiodas, or you go directly to Novatech, who employed, as I said, they employed that Dutch guy directly. They will take people on directly. But it's going to be an interesting dilemma, I think, because what's going to happen in future is these major oil companies are going to be desperate for projects in which to dump all these employees onto. But the people who own it will be saying, no, we're not interested. We maybe take one or two of your guys, but... We don't even need your management systems. What we really need is just your cash. So in other words, you become a bit of a bank, which is going to cause them a headache because they have so many employees tied up waiting for the next project to give them something to do. So it's interesting. Total has done extremely well in getting a Gina operational. To be honest, I have my doubts they do it, but they seem to have. So credit to everybody who worked on it, especially the 80% Nigerians. But what it's done is proven that you can get what used to be a very complex and difficult engineering project over the line and operating with almost all local labor anywhere in the world using a few specialist subcontractors, but no real Western management, just a handful of individuals who can be employed as, as independent contractors. So... Although I think this will, is being touted as a success, not just by Total, but I think probably most of the major oil companies, it's actually going to prove that they're going to have real headaches in future. And it's going to be really interesting how these companies 
position themselves and what they think will be their added value be really interesting. I'm not sure all of them are quite ready for those kind of questions, but we'll see. So my second topic I want to talk about is um, comes from something I saw on Twitter last week, and it involves um, the promiscuity of, of women. Now, a woman I follow on Twitter, who's she? I think she's American, she's conservative, and she's quite sensible. So I might put a link to the original tweet on my blog, but she wasn't being she wasn't being silly or anything, but she took offence at the the notion that a woman's value is diminished the more sexual partners she has. Now I can understand why she found that offensive. There's this side of the internet, the manosphere or the you know, the um, the PUA pickup artist side which has this rather um crude view that uh you know women should be limiting or very seriously severely limiting the number of sexual partners and if they've had more than one you know it's uh they're they're really not worth anything and this kind of thing and the way that point is put across by these guys on certain websites I can see why it is offensive because it, it does come across as very childish there's no nuance behind it they're normally guys who are obviously losers sort of passing judgment and as you know I've got no problem passing judgment but you need to be able to back it up with something and actually explain yourself and these guys never do they're just kind of you know going on about how these women are riding the cock carousel and, you know, they're they're finished and all all this other nonsense. But I actually did reply to her because there are a few more nuanced points to make, although both both of my remarks got ignored, so obviously I didn't think she or anyone else was particularly interested in in the discussion. But I think it's worth talking about anyway. Now she says that she her point was that it doesn't matter how many sexual partners a woman has her her value is still the same but the value of something including a person is really determined by the person buying as much as the person selling and certainly not by a third party observer so she might believe women have a certain value but that's irrelevant if it's a problem with the person buying, or in this case, the person looking to go into a relationship, then yes, it does diminish that value. Now, they might not be rational, they might not be fair, it might be completely unjust, but if there are men out there who don't want to go into a long-term relationship with women who've had multiple sexual partners, then regardless of the fairness of that, her value in terms of a potential partner is diminished. And But I think where what this stems from is something that happens when men and women are much younger. And I think I'm the only one who's pointed out that this changes dramatically past a certain age. Now, when we're young, when men are 16, 17 to about 24, 25, we're all pretty desperate. We'd shag absolutely anything. So we're really running around trying to put out with anything. And it's quite funny now to watch younger guys in nightclubs. Um, because I remember what I was like. I remember what all my friends were like when we were at school, at university. You know, you're chasing after anything. You know, it's all 
and and the the more sexual conquests you have the the bigger you are this kind of thing um and women who are promiscuous then are branded as sluts but there's a reason for this and that's because for guys that age it really is kind of difficult to get laid okay there's always someone in your group who gets laid all the time you've always got one mate like that but for most guys who are 17 18 19 you know the the ratio of the amount we talk about it to the amount anything happens is pretty big whereas girls that age really could be as promiscuous as they want so due to the differing characteristics in men and women women do really have to show some restraint when they're young and men don't because men don't if men show no restraint whatsoever they're getting none anyway but that changes and this really doesn't get recognized that when men get to about a certain age, which is about 25, 26, 27, that desire to be promiscuous drops off. Now, it doesn't disappear completely, as any man will tell you. Every man still looks and, you know, imagines stuff. But you get to about 25, 26, 27, 28, and you're no longer just trying to shag everything that moves. Normally, because you've, you've done that by then, you want to enter into a stable relationship and you start realising the benefits of being with the same person. And so the, the, the comparison between the promiscuous men and the promiscuous women kind of drops off as well. The, when, if you're a man and you're 30 years old, 35 years old, 40 years old, and you're running around being promiscuous picking up barmaids, having one-night stands. You're not viewed in the same, with the same, in the same positive way as an 18, 19-year-old man would be, even by his peers. His peers wouldn't be looking at him thinking, oh, that guy's a stud, that guy's great. They'll think, what the hell's wrong with him? But that doesn't really get acknowledged. So what happens, although there is a huge inequality due to really um, competence in that field, when men and women are young, that evens out at about 25. So if men are offended, or sorry, if men don't want promiscuous to settle down with promiscuous women who are 26, 27, well, nor do women. Women don't want to settle down with promiscuous men. Now, they might admire them on some level when they were younger, that they played the field when they're younger. But let's be honest, if you're a 28, 29-year-old woman and you're looking for a serious life partner, and you meet a 32-year-old who hasn't been able to hold down a stable relationship, and he's still promiscuous, and he's going around shagging anything that moves, and he's on Tinder and having loads of one-night stands, she's not going to be very interested in him. In fact, his value is going to drop through the floor, same as it would for a woman who's promiscuous. So, and that doesn't get acknowledged. So, you end up, when with maturity pretty quickly that both of you have to kind of rein it in a bit because what a potential partner's looking for is characteristics that demonstrate you can hold down a functioning relationship now being promiscuous doesn't necessarily mean you can't but it's certainly not a good sign i mean being very promiscuous may be an indication of a lack of impulse control it might be an indication of lack of self-esteem. It might be an inability to delay short-term gratification. 
And these are all things that you want to see a partner has, uh, ha- has under control. They're not like that. A long-term partner, you want to see they've got their, imp- you know, they have impulse control, that they don't have low self-esteem that's going to send them running off into the arms of somebody else as soon as they're feeling a bit down. And this applies equally for men or women. And the other point I made was that it's not just about the numbers. Because, let's face it, if we're 30, 32, 35, 40, we've all had sexual partners, men and women. But that's not quite the same as being promiscuous. And it's all about, it becomes far more, the numbers don't really matter. What matters is under what circumstances do these these encounters take place. If you're a woman or a man who's looking for a partner and you're 30, 33, 34, 35 years old, and you meet somebody, and they've had, you can assume that they've had a reasonable number of sexual partners in this day and age, but you're not really interested in the number. You don't really care if it's five or 10 or eight or four, but what you do want to know is under what circumstances these encounters take place. If a woman is promiscuous, or a man, and they're going on holiday to exotic locations and shagging the local boys and girls, you know, and then you, know, you can hardly speak each other's language and it's a tumble on the beach and you go home and have to get checked up at the doctor later. That's not a good sign. Whereas if a man or a woman has been with somebody, you know, they've slept with quite a few people, but they're all within, you know, they were trying to have a relationship or it was within relationships. There's not many one night stands in there. That makes a big difference because it shows at least you were trying. At least you were, you know, if you dated somebody for six months or nine months, then okay, you know, that's different from if you went on holiday and you met somebody. You know, if a girl goes to Turkey and she meets a waiter or if a guy goes to Thailand and picks up a bar girl. So it's not really about the numbers, but it's about the, 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 it's about the circumstances under which these, these encounters took place. There's also the question of the standards that have been applied. And this is why I think a lot of women don't realise, especially as they get older. They think that, you know, they, they, they've nailed the promiscuity argument that, you know, in the modern day and age, women can be promiscuous and, you know, it, it doesn't do anything to our value. But it depends who they were with. And again, this applies to men. If, if a woman meets a guy who's had quite a few sexual partners and they turned out that they're like substandard women and she sees a photo of the last woman he slept with and she's some woman that's really is past her prime and she's wearing Argos jewellery, too much makeup and she's got a tattoo of a tiger crawling up between her tits, the new girlfriend isn't going to be very impressed with that. Whereas if he shows a picture and says, oh, this is a girl that it was, um, I went to college with her, we met up, she's working here, she's kind of got her life under control, or she did at that point, then she thinks, okay, fair enough. And it's the same with guys. If a guy meets a new girl and, and she finds out that her last partner was, you know, a guy who seemed to have his life together, he's a normal looking bloke who's similar age to her and had a proper job, then you think, okay, you know, well, why not? If it turns out he's somebody who's 40 years older than her or happened to assist her getting a passport from Brazil to France or, you know, was just some guy she met on holiday when she went scuba diving in Madagascar and when he was the local diving instructor and he came back with her and, you know, they tried living together, it didn't work. These are all signs of a kind of lack of, lack of judgment and lack of self-esteem both of which is important when trying to find a partner going forward. So my point with this is that 
yeah, absolute, you know, promiscuity and numbers of partners don't really mean anything in isolation, but they're indicators of other things. And that applies for men and women. And I don't think women realise this. They think that they've got this idea that men can be shagging around a whole load of substandard women and it won't do any harm to the chances of them finding a suitable partner. Well, it will. Of course it will. Because most of the decent guys I knew, well, they're all married now. And they all got married in their late 20s and or early 30s. And the women they're with made damn sure that they were had grown up, they'd got whatever they needed to do out of their system, and they were ready to take the to take the next step for a stable relationship. And if they'd still been promiscuous and out shagging random women, well, they, they, they'd still be on their own, and rightly so. So I think it's quite interesting, this. It doesn't really get acknowledged. And uh, I'd... I'd, I'd um, so when this comes up on the internet, they, they still seem to think these... Even, even middle-aged, quite smart women still seem to think the double standard from when we're teenagers and early 20s still apply. And it doesn't. And instead, what you're really looking for, rather than numbers, is just, uh, you know, what kind, what kind of person they're with. And the other thing, it's not just women who will judge men's partners, it's men will as well. Let's be honest, I think most of my listeners are sort of late 30s, early 40s at least, I don't think I've got many teenagers. But when you're young, when you're 19, 20, and your mate turns up with his new girlfriend, and she's absolutely stunning, but thick as pig shit, you know, you're kind of like, oh, good lad, you know, that's quite funny. Um, and that'll do. But can you imagine if you were 35 or 40 and your friend turns up with a new girlfriend and she's dumb as dirt? Now she's nice looking, but she's absolutely dumb as dirt, can hardly string three sentences together. You wouldn't really respect her, nor would you respect him. That's not to say that men primarily ignore looks and go for women's intelligence and career prospect. Not at all. But there is a balance and most men, despite everything they say, or women think they say, most men still want a partner they can have a conversation with. They want someone who's not high-flying, super power-skirt lawyer in New York, but somebody who has a reasonable education, is able to make informed decisions, can hold a conversation, and could be a normal functioning adult. There's, despite that men are very visually driven... They still do want some kind of personality in there. And I don't think that gets acknowledged much either. I mean, feminists either seem to think that men just go uh, want a complete bimbo who's 20, or they want some real high-flying power skirt who's just going to bust their balls the whole time. They don't seem to understand that there is, like everything, there is a real happy medium. So yeah, promiscuity doesn't matter to a point. But if she's still promiscuous, then yeah, it's a serious problem. And yeah, I don't think anybody really minds whether their future wife had a one-night stand once or twice. But if this, is, if this was the pattern through her life through her 20s and early 30s, that's not a good sign either. So it's like everything, there's a bit of a balance. Now, unfortunately, the, the, the manosphere and the guys from the pickup artist sites... They're not any more mature about this than the than the feminists either. So, which is why this, uh, I think, this lady did get offended. But it's a, it's. I thought it was a, it's, you know, it's an interesting discussion, and I thought I'd just throw that out there. So, anyway, that's it from me um, this week. Uh, I think that's coming up to forty minutes. So, yeah, we had an oil and gas project followed by um, sexual preferences of women. So, don't don't ever say that I don't give you diverse topics to think about. So thanks everybody and I'll catch up with you next time.
Bye bye.